another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the editors, the cinematographers, the costume designers, the production designers, the sound mixers, sound editors, um, composers, authors, you name it, we talk to them. And boy, are we going to do some talking today. Hope you all had a good 4th of July. We weren't here last week. Uh, and the week before, uh, you got to hear a show I pre-recorded in the morning to save on gas driving down here uh, to the studio uh, with Shane Stanley talking his film Double Threat. But we are back live in studio today. And hey, if you're listening on AdrenalineRadio.com, thank you, thank you. If you're watching uh, the live stream on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, that's, you know, that's spiffy too. It's never exciting just watching me sitting here talking. And that's why every week I try and give you some really cool-looking tablescapes that I put together. So this week, another big shout-out here, we've got our... Schmigadoon picnic basket set up here. We've got our little Ted Lasso Believe Greenery. Um, a new toy I bought for myself as an early birthday gift. A thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle of all movie one-sheet posters. It may drive me crazy, but I'm determined to do it. And a big shout-out here. Disney Plus, thank you, thank you, thank you for making... Baymax the series. This I fell in love with Baymax a, quite a few years ago for Big Hero 6. And uh, all of you may remember we I had some audio clips from an interview with Scott Adson who voices uh, the adorable Baymax as well as some of the creators of the animation and the directors. Well, Disney at that time and Pixar were very kind to you know, give us some lovely Baymax swag, which I have held on in pristine condition. And uh, the Funko pop-up uh, still in the original box with the scotch tape intact. So broke them out to bring today for the set to honor Baymax. Trust me, six episodes on Disney+, Plus, Baymax and different adventures, and we're talking ten minutes. For each short. I'm ready for more. This is just season one. Apparently there will be more. But absolutely adorable. Social issues are brought into each little episode. Um, great diversity. But with the charm and the heart and the joy of Baymax throughout everything. So I can't encourage you enough to... When you're on Disney+, Plus, if you're looking for some quick stuff, just to fill in a few minutes... Baymax, the series. I love it. Now, joining us today, and he's actually on the line right now, I'm going to bring him live in a minute, is Daniel Coplin, uh, filmmaker. He's a producer, writer, director, editor, and actor. In his new film, Eight Wins, and it is an interesting film, to say the least. I can't wait to talk to him. And after Dan... You're going to hear my exclusive interview with director Anthony and co-writer Anthony Fabian talking about, 
and I, I'm saying it now, it is my favorite film of the year so far, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. And we're going to talk more about that shortly. But right now, I am bringing on the uber-talented Daniel Copland. Hi, Dan. Hi, Debbie. How are you today? I am fine. How are you doing today? Oh, you know, still six feet above ground and breathing. <laughs> I always say, hey, if I haven't had to call anyone for bail money, I'm doing fine. So, Indeed. <laughs> welcome. I am Thank so, you. so excited to talk with you about Eight Wins. Now, I'm already familiar with you were a producer on The Lost City of Cecil B. DeMille that Peter Brosnan Correct. directed. And I love that documentary. Oh, thank you. I, that was a real labor of love, and it took like 35 years to get that film made. Well, and well, it's because people didn't know where everything was, you know, from yeah. from DeMille's first creation of uh, the of the Ten Commandments. So yeah, it's a great story. It really is, and the documentary. I encourage everyone. If you haven't seen it, hunt it down, see it, because you will be fascinated, especially classic film fans. And I urge this at the time it came out to all the classic film fans, you know, who just gravitate towards anything about the early days and the golden age of Hollywood. Um, this is one of the best um, pieces of history that they can take a look at. And... Uh, I still, I still love it as much today as I did when I first saw it. Well, thank you so much. I'll, I'll let Peter know. I, I know it, uh, it was a you know, very emotional story for him. So. Mm -hmm. But now we've got another interesting and emotional story here from you, Eight Wins. The premise of this and what you've based this on is fascinating because you are a practicing Buddhist. And Correct. The film is based on the parable of the eight winds, um, which are prosperity, decline, disgrace, honor, praise, censure, suffering, and pleasure. And worthy persons are, you know, you're not overly exuberant when you're prosperous, nor do you just give up and crawl into a hole six feet down when life is giving you lemons. Um and it's believed the heavens will protect whoever is unbending and can t survive the eight winds. And I think it's a lovely parable. And you have now incorporated that into the film of the same name with a character which you portray, a filmmaker named Charlie Nabus. And right. Charlie faces... Wow, boy, what Charlie faces <laughs> in, in Eight Wins. Charlie's facing, you know, his own mortality um, as a filmmaker. Is he ever going to get the money to get another film made? You know, has an opportunity, but then we get some espionage coming in here. We've got the Russians popping up. And we've got some fact that starts the story dealing with water rights in California and off the shores of California, um, which is a very real thing. So, yep. you know, what, what inspired, and of course there's also potential death, there's love, there's losing a love, uh, just 
you, you've got it all in here. So where do you even start with a story like this? Well, the inciting event was the 2016 election. Um, I was actually on the road with the DeMille documentary up in uh, Napa for the film festival up there when the election results were coming in. And, you know, I, I had been working on other, other people's films for a long time, and it had been almost 20 years since I had made a film of my own. And so I decided no matter what, I was going to make a movie. Um, and being in Napa and talking to some of the, 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 the winery owners and, and the grape growers up there, um, you know, the issue of water rights came up, and Chinatown is one of my favorite films. Um, so I thought there might be an interesting, you know, plot, the MacGuffin in, in the water rights, and also um, the the Russian intervention in, in the U.S. elections also was something that was on my mind and was a, a factor that was going to be around for a long time. Um, so I thought there would be an interesting story there about the Russian oligarchs trying to control water rights. And over the years, many oligarchs have been investing in water rights in the United States and around the world. So um, I just thought it would be a great, great plot device. And then, um, you know, I just started writing. I wrote my, wrote very quickly. Uh, I think we uh, – that was – November 2016, we actually started shooting in July of 2017, so our f five years ago we started shooting. Um, it went very quickly. Wow. Well, I love the fact that, uh, you know, for one of the premises here with the whole idea of the water rights, uh, you know, the, the thrust of that aspect of it is to control the water rights you can cripple or or either cripple or destroy the economy yep. uh, when you attack because we need water as Californians very sorely know uh, especially in drought that without water we have problems and as you yep. as you look at everything right this very minute that's rolling in this morning I just heard on KNX as I was driving to the studio um, that now the Great Salt Lake there is an inordinate amount of arsenic that around yep. where the water has dissipated and evaporated and it is such a heavy concentration that wind can blow it up into the air and it can adversely affect people and make them ill so yep. uh, you know it's and this is thousands of years of arsenic that's been accumulating at the bottom of this lake uh, right and now we've, you know, abused our water supplies so much. So it, your film is very timely right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, not only did I get the water rights issue right, but I got the invasion of the Ukraine right. And You sure um, did. I, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, very prescient. Very prescient, Dan. Uh, but, you know, you have this structured really well, but it's one thing, you write it, you direct it. But because this is a low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget, low, 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 no-budget film, essentially, um, you are also editing, you're acting, you play Charlie Nabus. Um, right. You have this. I'm really curious how you pulled this off because uh, I know that you bought your own equipment, 
smart thing to do, no rental fees, but you've got to make it manageable so that you and maybe a minimal crew of one or two other people can handle things. But that limits you to natural light source and situations, which a lot of this is exteriors. Um, so you solve that problem beautifully in constructing this. Um, interiors, then you have a little bit of a problem with light. But, you know, the whole idea is you've got to work with what you've got. So you've got a camera. You, you don't have external sound equipment. You don't have booms hanging down. So what do you do? You can go wireless. You can go lavs. But you can only accommodate so much in camera. So that limits how many people you can have in a scene. So exactly. <laughs> how, how did you, from a directorial standpoint, you got your script done, you know, when did you figure out how you were going to do this logistically to actually get well, it on film? You know, as I was writing the script, I knew I was going to make this film for no money. So, you know, I knew I, as far as, you're right, you know, there was a limit. So if you're using a camera that has only two audio inputs, that means you can only have two characters speaking in any scene. So you have to write two character scenes where people speak. Um, and I knew that going in. So, you know, I believe creativity is is enhanced by uh, restriction. So I put my creative cap on and I said, okay, this is what I can do with what I've got. So how do I create something with that limitation? And so all the script was written for either, um, uh, you know, locations that I knew I could get a hold of or locations that I knew I could steal um, <laughs> that I would be able to shoot in on the street in public guerrilla style and uh, shoot in stage scenes there uh, you know with a minimal crew and for most of the film I mean the crew was maybe three or four people yeah. um, we had a camera operator um, uh, we had a slate operator and uh, we sometimes for the, some of the interiors we had uh uh, like an assistant director, a person on book to help uh, cue the actors. And that was pretty much it for most of the shoot. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there were even times when it was just me and a remote control. There was nobody else. Um, so it was fun. And, you know, I liked the gritty look. I liked the natural light. I wanted to try and achieve some of the, uh, the kind of texture and tone that uh, Chavo achieves with, you know, the Terrence Malick films, where it's all natural light. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that was a limitation, but it was also an advantage because I could shoot very quickly um, and uh, get the film in the can. So how challenging was it directing yourself, Dan? Because Charlie's in, well, a, in, in a lot of scenes here. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, I, 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 I would do my scenes and I would have an assistant director um, you know, saying, coaching me or, or just saying, you know, maybe we could try it differently. But uh, I kind of have to trust my instinct and my own gut and having written the script and lived it, um, I was very close to it. So I didn't have to explain the character motivations or what was going on in the scene to an actor. So uh, that was helpful. Um, I have to be candid. I mean, I was afraid to look at the dailies. <laughs> <laughs> until the very end but 
at the end of the day, I was always reasonably pleased with the performance I turned in. And, um, you know, after years of training and, you know, I began making movies when I was 14. So the movies I made in high school, this is the way we did it. You know, mm-hmm. you were a cameraman one day and you were an actor the next day. Um, so it, all the training and all the experience that I've had over the many years is finally, you know, brought to bear in this film. Mm-hmm. Well, now, because you were also editing this, I'm curious, Dan, did you give yourself time to stop and think while you were filming, okay, well, maybe I don't have to do this or do that because I can take care of it in editing, or if I do this instead of that, that will solve, you know, one less edit that I have to worry about? Did that come into play at all in your thought process while directing? Well, when I was actually writing the script, I knew how I was going to edit it. Um, so, I, you know, I wrote a script very much in the way I w- was hoping to cut the film, but there are always surprises that come up during mm-hmm. production and post-production. Um, and uh, we did do some reshoots. There were some scenes that we shot that just weren't working, and we went back to reshoot them. And the results were better, so that the one walk and talk between Charlie and Natalie in Beverly Hills with the fireworks, um, the fireworks was completely fortuitous. I had no idea that there were going to be fireworks that night, and my cameraman was just brilliant in capturing it, and it just added a nice nuance and and texture to that scene that might not have been there. Um, we had already shot the scene once, and it just didn't work. So we mm-hmm. went back and reshot it, and it was, you know, much better. Um, so, you know, uh, editing is like rewriting your film. So you rewrite the script until you get to a point where you've vetted it, and then you go out and you make your movie, and then you get into the editing room and you rewrite some more, and things that were working on paper don't work. Uh, in the final cut. So, I mean, in Ed Wins, there was an entire character that I had to cut out of the film just because it wasn't working and it really hurt because it was one of my favorite characters. But, you know, when you're in the editing room, you do have to be ruthless. You've got to kill your darlings. uh, (laughs) It just wasn't working. And so that character, unfortunately, um, ended up on the cutting room floor, as they say. Mm. Well... Talk to me about your casting here, because in addition to yourself, you've got a wonderful actress, Leona Parminsky. She's Croatian, who plays your love interest, America Frides, and then one of my favorite people for many decades now, Robert Davi, as a reclusive billionaire, John Conover. Um, Talk to me about, you know, your casting here, because... This part of John Conover, it was almost as if you had written it with Bobby in mind. Yeah. Well, he did a great job, and he was a real trooper. Um, I mean, uh, you know, we were talking about shooting 19 pages of dialogue-heavy material, and we, you know, shot it in about two days, Mm -hmm. two half days, kind of, four or five-hour days. Wow. he was a real trooper. It was a joy working with him. And, I, you know, I know he's proud of the performance, and I know that I'm proud of the performance. There are so many wonderful little nuances uh, in in his work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that he usually ends up being cast as a, you know, a mobster. Yeah. Um, but there's so much texture and nuance in this performance that I really think it's a new way to look at him 
And uh, I'm so proud that we got him, uh, we're able to uh, get him. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. There was another actor that was originally cast in the film and, and shot. And then we ran into a situation, a Me Too situation, not unlike the situation with Kevin Spacey mm-hmm. and all the money in the world. And my distributor said, no, we're not going dis- to distribute the film with that actor. And it said, okay, we'll reshoot. And it took me a year to find the money to get the reshoot. So um, the scenes between um, Charlie and, and Robert Davi were shot about 18 months apart. Um, but it cuts together nicely, and, and, and that was great. And Leona was was a godsend. Um, another funny story. So I found my – we had actually shot everything we could, could shoot without uh, America being cast. And I found myself in kind of in the situation of David O. Selznick and casting Scarlett mm-hmm. O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. I had nothing left to shoot, so I shut down for two weeks trying to cast this part. And uh, none of the actors that I had made offers to were willing to work. Um, and I remember something that Cassie and Ellis once told me, you know, look at stars that are or actors that are stars in their own territory. They all want to make American movies. And um, I looked at this submission again, and I was, you know, intrigued. And then I called her agent and sent her the script and asked for a self-tape. And like two hours later, I got this brilliant self-tape. And she was so spot on that uh, we were able to to hire her. And she's just brilliant. She adds so much to the film. She makes that whole um, uh, love story component of the of the film work and the chemistry between her and Charlie I think is actually quite authentic and palpable and mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just so grateful that she said yes. Well, you know, I want to go back to the footage um you know of of Davi and those scenes on the boat. Right. Um, because I've got to say you matched up the sunlight so well with you know the footage of yourself and then you cut and we see him sitting there and you've got the sun coming in behind him so it would have been brighter on your face and looking at him really well done from a visual standpoint in terms of synchronicity uh you know shooting you know over a year apart you really really made that work yeah you know, I mean, I was, I'm really impressed. Thank you. How you did that. Yeah, um, it was, uh, it was a challenge. I mean, we actually ended up shooting my sides of that scene twice. Um, we had shot it once uh, before the, with the other actor, hoping he would show up, and unfortunately, he was really late to the set. And so by the time he got there, the light had changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we shot his sides because I only had the boat for a certain period of time. And then I went back a couple of days later and reshot my side at the right light. So, <laughs> And then a year, wow. 18 months later, I had to go back and reshoot <laughs> the Conover roll. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I knew the light was going to be at a certain angle at a certain time. And that's always a challenge when you're doing natural lighting. So, um, you know, I said to Robert, okay, here's your call time. We have about, you know, four or five hours where the light's going to be okay. And 
he showed up and we marched straight through it. Yeah, I mean that just amazes me how well you you match that up. Well, you know, you're shoot, you're trying to shoot as much natural light as you can, but of course then you have you've got some night stuff, but then you also have a, the comedy club, the stand-up comedy club um right. which is indoors. Um, and it looks very much like a functioning club with the spotlight on the stage as you're as you're killing it or being killed by your jokes. Um, right. You know, what did you do for lighting and a setup there for that interior? Because you really captured the well, vibe of a, you know, of a club like that. Yeah. Well, it was actually filmed in two different locations. So the part with Charlie Nabis doing his stand-up routine on the stage was shot, shot at the uh, Lounge Theater in Hollywood. And then the other side, the actual bar side of the club, was shot on a standing set up at Remit Studios in the Encino. So for the, uh, the stand-up brick wall comedy club, Mm-hmm. A stage bit that was pretty much whatever you know the basic lighting that the that that theater had, and then for the um, the flip side of the bar and and the club side, I used a couple. I rented a couple of. I rented a two bulb Kino, mm-hmm. Kino Flow light, and uh, I had a little bit of a light panel, so I put some frost and lavender gel over the Kino Flow, and that was like the key light for the bar. It gave it that kind of purple neon mm-hmm. look that a lot of bars have. And then for the pool table, um, we used that little light panel. And I thought it would look really good. Yeah. I, I, I thought for sure that you were shooting in an actual, you know, one of, one of the comedy clubs because so often you see like a cedar-colored wood as a backdrop or brick. And it, right. it really it looks very authentic, Dan. Oh, thank you. You know, and that's the the wonderful thing about movie geography and movie magic is that if you know what you're doing, you can make things like that happen, and the illusion is created. And I've given away a secret, but <laughs> so be it. You know, how challenging was the editing process, and how long was the editing process for you? Because you know, it's because you it is it's killing your darlings is very difficult. But you also have to look at time constraints for the distributor, for an audience, right. and you've got to find your pacing. So yeah. talk to me about your process for editing this. Well, um, I edited myself on Premiere Pro. I love editing. Um, it's another chance to rewrite your, your movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we wrapped principal photography in September of 2017, and I had a pretty good functioning cut, I think, by the, the following spring. So I went through about 10 cuts on the, on the, on the, the film. The original cut was about two hours and 12 minutes, and the final version is an hour and 93 minutes. Um, so it was just a question of, you know, creating versions and then showing it to people whose opinion I trust, uh, getting feedback and vetting it. And then again, there was that one year delay because of the recasting and reshooting of the Conover role. So that took some time. 
Um, I had worked with another composer on a film, and I really, really loved his work and brought him on to this film, and for whatever reason, we just couldn't get it together. Um, so he asked to be released. Uh, so I had to find another composer, and that cost me, I would say, another six months to wow. find the composer and get the score done. So we had a locked picture, and then the sound sound work, and all kinds. So actually, the by the time we got to doing the score and the sound work, COVID had hit, so I couldn't do any of this in person. Mm-hmm. So it was all over the internet with emailed notes, um, and that was interesting. But it made the you know the communication more challenging. Normally, you can sit down with a composer and go through the cues and say, try this, try this, no more of this, less of that. Um, and because the composer was uh, uh, he's actually Chinese, um, <laughs> there was a time difference and a little bit of lag. So it wasn't, you know, wasn't as efficient, but, you know, you push through. And then on the sound work, again, I couldn't sit with the, the sound... Um, team, which they did a great job. All that sound is production sound. There's wow. very little uh, ADR work, um, and they cleaned it up and made it sound great. Uh, so they did a hell of a job. But all that was done pretty much over the internet as well. Um, so uh, yeah, we had a, a a final version. I think we made delivery uh, in July of twenty. 19 and then we were supposed to have our original street date July of uh, December 20 mm-hmm. and then uh, we had technical problems with the QC process which <laughs> cost me another year uh, to resolve and then we finally came out on March 29th of this year wow wow this has been a heck of a journey, Dan. But <laughs> well, they all independent films are a heck yes. of a journey. Uh, you know, uh, I didn't want it to take five years. I wanted to bang it out and have it out in like twelve months. But you know, they say you make plans and God laughs. Mm-hmm. Well, something that you bring up is the sound, and I'm really impressed with the sound. And call me crazy, but there are definite moments within the film where we hear wind in the background. Yeah. And it almost seems like the wind that that I'm hearing is coinciding with one of the eight winds that Charlie may may be facing. Indeed. At any given time. And I really love that. I kept listening, and I actually played it back. And I'm like, yes, that's wind, and it was, you know, at a difficult time, at a good time, when it's, oh, I'm going to get this interview. Uh, And I just thought it was really, I I just loved how that wind, subtle, soft, but definite wind, tied into the eight winds. I'm going to cry. Thank you so much. That was one of the things I told our sound team that I wanted to try and make the wind another character in the film. So, thank you so much for that. Oh, um, I, that added so much, and 
you know, cause, and I did, and I played it back just because I'm like, no, I'm not imagining that. And I played it back, <laughs> and lo and behold, at every point where I played it back, yes, I said that it's wind, it's wind, and you have, and it matches up with the tribulations that Charlie may be going through, at, or the joy that he may be going through at that particular moment. I just loved that you did that. I mean, thank you so much. I'll let this. I'll let Troy know. Troy Abramov did the sound work, and he did a hell of a job. And our uh, our dialogue editor Anthony did a great job. So I'll, I'll certainly communicate that to them. They deserved it. I mean, just I, I really, really was impressed by that. And without giving away any spoilers for people, the ending is beautifully done. You keep us uh, in suspense as to what the ending is going to be. And then when it, we finally get there, then you're just like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's a happy ending on one, on one hand. Um, leading up to it, not so happy. But, <laughs> but um, no, just, you know, I can see the work that you put into this film, Dan. Um, Thank you. It is very obvious uh, the fact that you didn't shy away from, you know, all the exteriors, you're working with minimal equipment, minimal people. Um, I love how you've got, you know, you were shooting during a protest. Yeah, we stole a protest. You got to do what you got to do, man. Yeah, well, <laughs> Haskell Wexler, medium cool, he inspired me. <laughs> You know, with so many exteriors uh, where you were shooting, obviously the interiors, you handpicked them and either somebody loaned it to you or whatever. Were you running into any issues with permitting at all? Well, um, since most of the stuff we did exterior was handheld, mm -hmm. you can kind of gorilla it, and, and we did not have permits. We had insurance, production insurance, liability insurance, but we did not have permits. So my basic belief was we're going to do this, and if they kick us out, we'll find another place to do it. And we never got kicked out. So, you know, and because you bought your own equipment, what camera were you using for this? We were using one of the Canon prosumer cameras, which was a HD camera, which had two XLR inputs. And then, uh, you were correct, we were using wireless mics. Um, so that was the plan, was to just really go guerrilla style. And I really think that, you know, that added a, a nice tone to the film. It made it more authentic, uh, more documentary stylish. And, yeah. you know, that kind of pulls the audience in, I think, to the reality of the situation. Well, especially when we are now seeing today, since you began this journey, so much of what you incorporated in here is now playing out in the world that we see before us. So, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, the I'm proud of that fact. I'm sad that it's happening, but I'm proud that I was correct in the in the anticipation of that. Yeah, I mean, just I really, you know, the timing has worked to your benefit. <laughs> unfortunately, but yeah. but it has. So now, how do you, I've got to ask the big question because I I know you're a lawyer. How do you manage to juggle your practice in making films? Well, it comes down to a question of time management. 
Um, uh, I've been very good at juggling things. I didn't really go to law school to become a lawyer. I went to law school so I could make movies. Um, so being a lawyer is my day job, and I do that, and I take care of my clients, but I also know how to schedule things um, and anticipate things so that I can manage manage it, uh, and I do it. And, you know, they say the journey of a thousand years begins with the first step, so I decided I was going to do it, and the question just became of managing the abilities. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what... What is the gift that filmmaking gives you? You know, yeah, being a lawyer is your day job, uh, but this is your passion. So I'm curious, what is the gift that filmmaking gives you that makes you want to keep making more films and tell stories? Yeah, I mean, so when I was young, when I was 14, I was very sick and I almost died. I only had a few hours to live, they tell me. Um, and the thing that kept me going when I was in the hospital was watching, you know, comedies and movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I came out of that, certainly my view of the world was different than most of the people around me. Uh, and so at that time, filmmaking was just starting to come into its own. And um, I had always been musical and was always able to match mood to music which is something that's inherent in cinema scoring. Mm-hmm. And um, one day, you know, my grandfather passed, and he gave us his, his old 16-millimeter camera, and we started making movies just because it was fun to do. And, and um, I really believe that um, the reason I'm on Earth and still kicking is to make movies and tell stories. And um, the gift that I get from it, I guess, is self-expression, self-realization, and the gift that I give to people, I hope, is a, you know, kind of a pathfinder experience to exploring their own humanity and reaching towards enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So now what's next for you, Dan? Do you have more stories on your plate that you want to tell? Yeah, you know, the... the, the the reason I made this film is because I had been trying to make another film for 20 years and nobody <laughs> said yes. And I got so frustrated, I said, you know, I can't, I got to make a film. Or if I don't make a film now, I'll never make another film. Um, so that film is, was called Let It Be, and it's kind of a riff on Orpheus and Wings of Desire, a story of a man seeking revenge for his wife's killer killing and he runs into the angel of death and what follows is a wild and sexy game of cat and mouse so if any crazy rich millionaires are listening please call me immediately (laughs) well i can't wait to see what you do next uh now would will you be starring in that one as well or will you step back and you know not wear quite so many hats well, when I had written originally written it 20 years ago, um, I had written it for myself. But I'm getting younger, so I'm too young to play that role <laughs> now. Um, so I'll probably just direct on this one and produce. Uh, well, we got to find you that rich investor. Indeed. That's it. Oh, Dan, this has been so lovely having you on the show and talking to you about Eight Wins. I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you, Debbie. It's been a real pleasure, and thank you so much for your kind words about my film. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. I really did, and I I see the work that you put into it and really appreciate it. 
And, you know, here's to the next one. And I hope you'll come back on the show again. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Dan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Daniel Coplin, writer, director, producer, actor, editor uh, of Eight Wins. It's available now, digital. It's everywhere. Uh, what else do we have here? And actually, when you watch the film, you may get the impression, because there's some, uh, there's some voiceover throughout it that his character of Charlie Nebus does, and it comes across very much like with a Hunter S. Thompson kind of feel. So it really, it's quite interesting to see what, he, what he's put together with Eight Winds. Uh, and as I said to, uh, to Dan, Robert Davi is amazing. He's amazing uh, in this brief role in this film. Uh, so check it out. Eight Winds. And now we're going to switch gears. And we're going to talk about, honestly, folks, it is my favorite film of the year so far. It just, it bring, puts a smile on my heart, a smile on my face. I have loved the story of Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris since I was 9 or 10 years old. The, the film is based on the book by Paul Gallico, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which was published in 1958. In the UK, the book was called Flowers for Mrs. Harris. So successful and beloved was the book that three more came after the original. Mrs. Harris Goes to New York, Mrs. Harris Goes to Parliament, Mrs. Harris Goes to Moscow. Yes, I have read all of them. But I was obsessed in elementary school. And this book, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, never left me. Fast forward to 1992 television first time there's been an adaptation for any kind of screen big screen small screen anthony shaw directs his mother angela lansbury in the 1992 television movie mrs Harris goes to paris and it was enchanting it was charming um i didn't know what to expect with anthony fabian's brand new version of Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. I'm a big fan of Anthony's work. We last spoke for his film Skin, which was in 2008. This starred Alice Krieg and Sam Neill. Uh, it was two white parents who gave birth to a black daughter uh, in South Africa. And it involved genetic debate and uh, social mores and society and prejudice. Um, very fascinating film. Very well done. So for Anthony to be now tackling Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, I thought that was really curious, and I wanted to see what he did. Well, what he did is pure enchantment. It is magical. It is a delight. Um, the script stays true to Gallico's novel, but elevates the emotion and gives us more substance as to why Mrs. Harris has dreams. And then Anthony follows that through with a beefed-up script that really gives some more depth to all the characters' backstories. Um, we get a greater sense of why Mrs. Harris has her dreams, but then he brings those dreams to life visually. The cast is outstanding. You've got Leslie Manville as Mrs. Harris. You've got Jason Isaacs, who I will see in anything and everything, as Archie, who is a bookmaker, 
And you have to remember, this is set in post-World War II London. Uh, you've got Isabel Huppert, who is, she radiates magnificent haughtiness as Mademoiselle Colbert, and she runs the Christian Dior Atelier Salon in Paris. Uh, there's the young model, Natasha, played by Alba Baptista. Uh, she's shy but confident. Uh, there's Andre, who is the accountant at Dior's, played by Lucas Bravo, who is adorable, and his chemistry with Alba Baptista is amazing. Then we've got Ada Harris's best friend, uh, played by Ellen Thomas. The two of them, you think they have been friends forever. The casting is so well done. And then we have some of, of Mrs. Harris's clients. Because she's a charwoman. She's a cleaning lady. And she goes to rich people's houses. And she cleans. And that's how she makes a living. And she's a widow. A presumed widow. Uh, her husband never returned from the war. But there has been no real declaration of death. But one day, Mrs. Harris sees a Christian Dior gown in, in the home of Lady Dant. And ugh, she wants a Christian Dior gown. And you have to remember, this is in the 19, early 1950s. And Dior was at the top of the game, cutting edge. And this is when fashion took in a uh, waistlines, got, became nipped in. Very, very fashion-important era. Uh, and this is all that Mrs. Harris wanted. So she saves her money and she heads off to Paris in pursuit of a Dior gown. The icing on the cake here, you've got incredible cinematography from Felix Wiedemann, um, which is just mind-blowing. Production designer Luciana uh, Arigi is beautiful, period-perfect. Rail Jones's score is whimsical, it's flighty, um, it's playful, and that's contrasted with a jazz sequence and a Paris cabaret. On every level, there's contrast, there's blending, there's societal commentary, but there is so much joy and so much heart all radiating from and because of the character of Ada Harris and Leslie Manville's performance. But, folks... We're looking at an Oscar contender here for none other than Jenny Beaven as costume designer. And there is a 1950s House of, D of Dior fashion show that is put on with actual designs. The costumes have been recreated from actual Dior designs. Just, you hold your breath and you're just overjoyed. So, I spoke with director Anthony Fabian about Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris with great joy. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Debbie. I can't tell you how, how excited I am to be speaking to you again. The last time we spoke was for skin. Wow. That's exciting. I love people who um, I can reconnect with this way. I loved that movie so much, Anthony. So I found Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, an interesting film for you to direct. But I have to tell you, sir, this is pure enchantment. It is spectacular, a magical delight. I am in love with what you've done with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Oh, thank you so much. 
Did you see the parallel between Skin and Mrs. Harris? I did. You've got contrast happening. You've got class situations happening. What I also noticed, because I was a big fan of the Mrs. Harris books, all four of them, you have beefed up and actually contemporized a bit some of the social issues that we now have today that you capture beautifully in this post-World War II era as well. So... Oh, thank you. You have so much happening here, and you really beef up the characters and their backstories in yeah. the film. That, yeah, that was super important <laughs> for us to do with this adaptation because Gallico doesn't really give you enough. No. It's quite, it's quite superficial. He sets the scene and he gives you the bare bones and the basics for the characters, but we had to do a lot of work on backstories to, to give it that richness. And I'm really glad that you picked up on some of the layers, like the the, so the, the workers' rights mm -hmm. element, which gives her quite a lot of backbone, doesn't it? It uh, surely does. It's funny because I was I loved the 1992 telemovie that Anthony Shaw did with his directing his mother, Angela Lansbury, in mm -hmm. Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. And that was so charming. I thought, oh, God. I hope Anthony doesn't screw this one up. And you surpassed it so much, and you gave it so much more richness. The TV version from 92, they never really developed the backstories there. So this is really fresh and exciting, what you've done. Oh, I'm so pleased, and I'm, I'm so delighted that you have such a, a deep knowledge of, of the material so that you, really, you can really see what we, what we did with it. I'm disappointed you didn't do Mrs. Harris Goes to Moscow, quite honestly. But... <laughs> well, what, what makes you think I'm not going to do <laughs> I'll be first in line if you do, Anthony. <laughs> Trust me, this franchise is already starting. The discussions are already starting. And, um, it, you know, if this film becomes a success, you'll be seeing all three books, remaining books. I would... Made. Uh, that would just make my lifetime. I mean, this is such a. I love books that are tr that are that are translated and adapted to the big screen, but that are done well, and you yeah. have done this so well, and thank you. And so much of this, Anthony, and this is what does not surprise me, is your attention to detail with your department heads, with Luciana on the production design. Luciana is amazing with period pieces. What she did. For Ben Lewin with Catcher Was a Spy was outstanding for that yeah. World War II period. Yeah. And you jump in with Felix as your cinematographer. Everything in this film is about contrast. You have Ada Harris, she wears floral, tiny little floral prints in her clothes. There's some floral in the wallpaper in her house. You go to Paris and the floral disappears except in real flowers. Even the walkway to her home, which is bright, whereas the interior is darker. Talk to me about developing this visual tonal bandwidth that really is married so well with the emotional tonal bandwidth. Well, you know, you, you, you are absolutely 100% correct in this observation. I wanted to create two very different worlds between London and Paris. Um, and so we worked hard between Lucci, um, Jenny Bevan and, and I, and the cameraman to create these two distinct worlds. And 
you're right to pick up on the flowers. That was uh, something that Christian Dior himself had a passion for, mm-hmm. both both real and in print. Um, in fact, his sister, um, Catherine Dior, took over the perfume side of the business and, and, and grew the roses and the lavender that went into the Dior perfumes um, on behalf of Christian Dior. Um, so flowers are an enormously important detail that, has, that, that stems from Dior himself. Mm-hmm. But what we, what, we, what we decided was that the two worlds had to have very distinct color palettes and that London had to be more drab so that Paris becomes this glorious revelation when she actually gets there. And part of the way we achieved that was by, by restricting the palette in London to grays, greens, browns, um, muted tones, and then making Paris sharper and more defined. Black, white, more primary colors, stronger colors, and we we played with the grading as well to emphasize the difference between those two worlds. Um, so there is more vibrancy in Paris, um, and more sharpness, more clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in fact, Christian Dior's office is the only interior that has any kind of pattern in it mm-hmm. um, again flowers um, but you know very different and a French wallpaper as you say Luci Luciana Righi is, a, is, a, is such a stunning iconic designer herself and with such a, a knowledge of both the French and the English worlds because she's lived like me she has lived both in London and Paris mm-hmm. which is why she was really the perfect designer for this movie and so for London, she chose these William Morris wallpapers, which were just perfect for her interior without being remotely too grand. That was my biggest concern, not to make Ada's flat. You know, if you remember the Angela Lansbury film, she had a very middle class flat that she was living in. Very much so. Far too, far too pretty and nice. And just, I kept saying to Lucci, make it dirtier, make it darker. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, make it dingier because we didn't want to make it pretty and middle class. Um, and, you know, she's busy cleaning everyone else's houses. She doesn't have time to repaint her own. <laughs> um, so um, that was a big factor. And then you, you, you very cleverly mentioned the, this idea of the what she wears um, in her blouse and what's on the, in the... Um, in the wallpaper, that was something that for me was inspired by Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which was a, a big influence uh, for me making this film. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, in Umbrellas of Cherbourg, they had this outrageous thing of these very, very strong colors and wallpapers that were immediately echoed in the costumes in shocking and mm-hmm. surprising ways. And we took that idea and make it made it much much more subtle. So, um, you know, you've got you've got print on print. You have Ada's print blouse with a print apron that she wears, mm-hmm. and the colours are sort of um, complementary to each other. And then you've got her her um, the, the flowers in the background. So. There was an attempt to do this, but in a perhaps a slightly more subtle and less 60s way, more 50s, less shocking, mm-hmm. less, um, less crazy. You really feel the post-war, late 40s, early 50s. The 50s really come to life in Paris 
especially with the all-white atelier salon and it's a canvas and Ada walks in there and when she, she's stripped down to her slip which is white she then becomes the canvas for Dior's yeah. seamstresses to work on but and this is where Jenny's work is just I was gobsmacked Anthony gobsmacked to yeah. pick the new Dior look of the 50s with the nipped in waist on everything yeah. that was such a transformative fashion statement that Dior did and I swear it could have been Audrey Hepburn walking just out of a movie with every fashion that Jenny brought to life just stunning stunning you you, you hit directly on the reference so uh, we based Alba's look entirely on Audrey Hepburn you'll notice her hairstyles are all Audrey Mm -hmm. um I studied funny face uh, before making this film that had a lot to do with the color palette in Paris as well, um, as well as the choreography of the camera, which was based on musicals. So Mm -hmm. Umbrella's funny face, um, My Fair Lady, I I really looked at the way the camera was used in those movies and tried to do my own updated version of that, if you like. Well, you really succeed in it. With the fashion show, you really feel that lyricism. And what you and Felix also do is the deeper we get into the fashion show and the more and the deeper and more mesmerizing it is to Ada, the camera goes in tighter on the the clothing. Of course, the color palette of the fashions intensifies as the fashion show goes on till we get to the stunning Venus and then the temptation dress dresses. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, um, Jenny and I spent a lot of time discussing the color journey of that fashion show. So it had to, it had to achieve many things. It had to, because it was the 10th anniversary collection, it had to be a summation of his oeuvre across that decade, mm-hmm. um, as well as concentrate on 1957, which is the year that the film uh, takes place. And then, so it had to, and then the, the, there is a progression in the original Dior shows from day wear to cocktail dresses to evening gowns, mm-hmm. which, which has a natural build of drama. So we just, we just literally recreated what was done historically in that, and it works. Oh. And then, of course, every show ended with a wedding dress. And it didn't occur to me until I actually was in the editing room the emotional impact of that wedding dress at the end of the scene, because you have this extraordinary look between Natasha and Ada Mm -hmm. uh, when she's wearing the wedding dress. And because the film is so much about igniting love again and becoming open to love again, there's something so romantic and beautiful about her in the wedding dress, nodding to Ada and giving her permission consider the possibility of another relationship mm-hmm. oh i mean that's not too much of an exaggeration no i do think that that there's something about that wedding dress that really is both the emotional climax and the romantic climax of that show the camera captures alba's face perfectly with that nod to it's okay and of course we've got ada playing fairy godmother to <laughs> natasha and andre it's just so beautifully done, Anthony. Beautifully, visually choreographed. 
Um, I know th- I know they're going to cut us off here in a minute, but I would be remiss not to ask you about your about the score, Rail Jones score. This is from the very first notes. We feel whimsical. It's flighty. It's light. It's playful. The instrumentation even is very light. I am in love with the score. And then the contrast with the music when we get a jazz sequence or the Paris Cabaret. So I'm curious what kind of discussions and thoughts you had about what you were looking for musically. I just love talking to you because you're so smart about these things and it's just it's just such a joy. Um, look, you, you hit on all the, the key points. I wanted a score that was going to reflect the whimsy of the film but not direct the emotion too much so Mm -hmm. I was always asking the composer to work within an ambiguous uh, palette and an ambiguous chord progression he listened a lot to French music and what are the key the keys that that the French use the most Debussy and Ravel what are Mm -hmm. the what are the um, the tempi what are the uh, the chords that, that, that are particularly French, so that emphasized the Frenchness of the French section. And so the Marquis has his own theme, which is, which is very Michel Legrand in a way. Mm-hmm. And then the use of instruments, we, we do have different instruments that represent different moods or characters. And we, were, we have solo flute, we have solo um, clarinet, um, we uh, have solo piano a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, that's mostly Ada is solo piano, but the flute is also really instrumental in this score. And then there are the jazz elements because I wanted to bring a modernity to the story. I didn't want it to feel too old-fashioned. And there's something wonderful about jazz, which is that it's both period and modern mm-hmm. uh, at the same time because it is quite a radical musical form. And so I don't know if you noticed, but in the dinner between Natasha, Ada, and Andre, the first dinner in his flat, there's this Miles Davis-type track that's yes. playing, um, which, you know, was a kind of sound-alike um, with, with the trumpet. And then, of course, there's the big band sound of the finale. At the um, Legion Hall, yes. Those pub scenes. Um, not to mention the cabaret, you know, where you have burlesque, um, as well as a kind of nod to Peter and the Wolf for the wolves in sheep's clothing. So it was an enormously varied score and a very challenging one, but Rail Jones is absolutely brilliant. He's, he's one of those young discoveries who's had a few breaks, but I think this is really the one where he's going to, to truly shine and be heard properly for this, the first time. This is the one that will put Rail on the map. I have no doubt. No, no doubt. Thank you so much, Debbie. Oh, okay. Bye, Anthony. I hope we get to do this again. Me too. Love you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Anthony Fabian. And you heard that little, you know, publicist cutting in. That's all the time we have. Um, Yes, that abruptness. This is what happens in interviews sometimes. And I couldn't get a clean cut out. So I left it in for all of you to hear what we go through sometimes as press in interviews. Well, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris is in theaters on Friday. I, it is, I'm actually going to go to the theater and see it yet again. 
that is going to be my birthday weekend to myself. We'll be seeing Mrs. Harris goes to Paris again. So that is all the time we have today. Until next time, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.